This summer bonus episode of the Don't Shoot the Messenger podcast is proudly supported by Click for Vic. You can buy online now direct from chefs, artisans, makers and creators across Melbourne and Victoria. Click for Vic and get the best of Victoria delivered at visitvictoria.com forward slash click for Vic. And now here's Corrie, Caro and special guest Jock Sarong with a conversation we recorded just before our summer break. We hope you enjoy it. everyone and welcome to Don't Shoot the Messenger Summer Edition. We're having a little break from all the political stuff and we thought what we would do is Carol and I would focus on BSF, Books, Screen and Food, which is one of our favourite segments of our usual podcast, Don't Shoot the Messenger. Carol, would you like to introduce our special guest for Books? Yeah, well, he is one of our absolute faves. Um, he's an award-winning Australian author. He's got a new book out that you tell me, Corrie, is now going to be part of a trilogy. He is Jock Sarong, and his new book is The Burning Island, which is a sequel to Preservation. Jock, thank you so much for joining us. Oh, thanks, Caro. Good to talk to you. It's lovely to have you on the line from Port Ferry. It must be busy down there with the summer holidays, but we hope you're getting time out to have a surf. I'm trying very hard to look after that side of things, yes. Uh, we're, we're going to talk about The Burning Island in a minute, which, as Caro said, is your new, your latest novel uh, in, in that wonderful series uh, with the menacing Mr Fig prowling around again in book two, as he did in Preservation Book One. But before we go to that, Jock, I just wanted to ask you, what, it's, what is it like in the year of COVID and lockdown in Victoria? to publish and then launch and then promote a new book? Uh, yeah, Corey, I guess like everything that's going on, it's pretty weird. Um, I've been very, very lucky in that I'm working with a young publicist at my publisher and she's been great at finding new ways to make the book visible and, and to generate a discussion about it, I suppose. So she's come up with lots of really good ideas and I think the other thing that's really noticeable is that festivals have reinvented themselves and they've found ways to run digital events that are actually engaging and fun and, and people um, will pay to, to watch and listen to them. So that's been really good. Um, there's been this extraordinary backlog of novels that have come out mostly in September and some of that is that that's a conventional time of year to release novels, but it's also novels that have been pushed back and pushed back by lockdowns. Um, so there's all of a sudden this enormous um, uh, multitude of books that are coming out. Um, I, I guess the flip side of that is that people are reading a lot more and they're changing the way they read. They're um, they're going back into the classics. They're changing genres. Um, so I think on balance, there's lots of opportunities there for readers and writers. I agree with you. I think that the Zoom uh, book club, for example, has become the new way of doing things and webinars between authors and interviewers has really taken off. It's quite a nice way to spend a 5.30 to 6.30 p.m. actually. You don't have to schlep over to someone's house with a plate of chicken sandwiches. You can just have them all yourself with a glass of wine. Oh, I, hope we, I hope we don't get too used to that. So, Jock, did you find that you wrote more during the time when you couldn't do much else? Yeah, I think I did. I think I did. I, I guess the flip side of that is that the kids are in the house, um, you know, being held back from school and the house is a much busier place and I'm just in a little shed in the backyard. But, yeah, deep winter, things go very quiet and the world sort of went into that dormant state and 
in a perverse kind of way that's maybe good for writers. Um, I guess the, the, the thing that mitigates against that is that we all became very obsessed with the news and the numbers and announcements and, and those things can be as important as they are. They can be very, very distracting. I have found, Jock, it's been a very difficult year for me personally to read. I've um, found uh, I've been quite distracted bad concentration levels, high anxiety, that sort of thing. A number of people who come into the bookshop each day say that they have had a similar experience. And then there is the other side of that, the people who have not stopped reading. Which camp would you fall into? Yeah, I'm very much in the not stopped reading. And and I try to think of reading as part of the work that I do. I'm trying to hear other voices and explore different, I guess, lines of thought. So um, I make a point of reading as much as I possibly can all the time anyway. And uh, this year has been good for that, I reckon. Well, in a minute, we're going to talk about what books you've loved in 2020. But we let's go back to the younger jock, the little jock who first started um, <laughs> surfing and hanging around and doing things and as teenagers do. But when did at what point did books become such an important part of your life? Um, I'm just thinking perhaps the easiest way to visualise this is a bowl haircut. And... Um, <laughs> I think uh, I was definitely read to by my parents and particularly by mum when I was very little, and I think that was a big influence. I started out my own reading, probably reading fantasy, things like Tolkien, and then that, I don't really know how, but that evolved into Australian writing and Tim Winton and people like that. The thing I think that really changed my reading permanently was I, there was a year at uni where I was, I was kind of crumbling out the edges of a law degree and hating it. And I picked up Russian literature for a year and um, it was so well taught and it was such fascinating material that I think it, it saved, it certainly saved my uni life. I probably would have gone and it really saved my reading life. It took me in all these interesting directions. And it was the first time I'd ever thought about novels in the context of their societies. The Russians were writing under heavy censorship. They were writing essentially under threat of death. And the writing is so incredibly vivid and intense for that. And it, I think that gave me a lifelong addiction to writers who really write from their guts and commit themselves to what they've written, rather than necessarily any particular genre, much more writers who have committed deeply to what they're doing as opposed to writers who haven't. I don't know if that makes sense, but it, it felt strong at the time. Well, you've certainly done that with um, th- these this unbelievable story of the early days of the colony that was Sydney. But b- before we move on to that, tell us what you have read this year, Jock, or last year, and what you can recommend. There's, there's been mountains of stuff. But um, a thing I did do when the lockdown was at its peak, I read On the Beach, which is uh, the Neville Shute novel that was written in, uh, I think, the early 50s about nuclear holocaust and and I guess the end of human civilization. And there's a new re-release of it with a Gideon Haig essay at the front. And it was utterly terrifying. I had no idea how scary that book is. That is so Uh, funny you bring that up because um, did you hear Gideon interviewed recently on um, the Nightline show on the ABC? No. Look, he, he talked about Neville Shute and what an unbelievable feat that was that that he achieved yes. with, with that book and um, I've, I've worked with him in the last few weeks and we've talked about it again because there was a Neville shoot sort of on the beach feel about Melbourne on grand final day actually <laughs> that uh, <laughs> sort of reminded me of is, isn't it an extraordinary story it is and 
the more you read about shoot and, and Gideon explains this very well, he was an engineer and he was a very serious, literal man. He wasn't artsy at all. And he wrote that book as a kind of methodical explanation of how he saw the end of things unfolding. And that's probably what makes it so chilling. And he hated the movie uh, that was made with Ava Gardner and um, Gregory, Peck. Gregory Peck. Fred Astaire. Mm. Yeah. He although, he, although he would have made a fair whack on the royalties, I would have thought. Yeah, he did. And, and amazingly, just on the weekend, I met Rick Amor, the Australian artist, and he the the re-release of On the Beach has got one of his woodcuts as the illustration on the cover. And Rick Amor, as an 11-year-old kid, wound up as an extra in the movie version of it. Wow. There's, there's one is particular a... frame where he's just this kid in the shot. Or he was hanging around Frankston Beach or something, wasn't he? Right, yes. trivia. Yeah, he grew up in Frankston. Yeah, yeah. that's right. That's where they did it all. That is extraordinary. Um, oh, well, that's a good one. On the beach, any others? I mean, obviously there's heaps, but can you single out anything yeah. else? That... I read a new Australian novel called The Rain Heron by a young Tasmanian guy called Robbie Arnott. His debut was a book called Flames. And I think The Rain Heron is a significant step up from that. It's sort of a fable. No, it is a fable. But it's not particularly recognisable as Tasmania or even as Australia. It's a story about a land after war and this mythical creature, which is the Rain Heron. And the, the feat of imagination is so extraordinary. It reads like a Japanese fairy tale or even a Brothers Grimm fairy tale. And it's quite scary, but it's also extraordinarily beautiful and the writing is very spare and tight and um, I think it's a huge achievement. That that one really stood out for me. Oh, okay. Well, there are a couple of great recommendations. Corrie, can we move on to yes. The Burning Island? Because yes. Jock and I did a, um, a webinar. We conducted it with book clubs who had read the book. So we actually were able to not use that hackneyed phrase, spoiler alert, because everybody knew what happened. <laughs> so I'm very cognizant of the fact that you and Jane have not, and a lot of the potties have not ploughed through this book yet. So it's going to, we'll have to tiptoe deftly around this one, Jock, as we discuss yes. it. But um, I think if you can just give our listeners an idea of the setup between preservation and this one, and then the next one that I think you've actually already finished, haven't you, Jock, the third in, in the trilogy? Um, I've certainly written six or seven drafts of it, but I think it's a long way from finished. The more I write, the more I'm feeling my way out into other corners of it. Yep. It's, it's Of the three books, it's definitely the largest and the most complex. Oh, great. Um, right. so, oh, so tell everybody what... something to look forward to. <laughs> Brilliant. So. Tell, tell everybody about the, the, this particular group of islands off the southeast Australian coast and why they have um, meant so much to you. Yeah, well, I guess the easiest way to explain the islands and the books is that um, there's this little cluster of islands between sort of Wilson's Prom and the northeast corner of Tassie called the Furneaux Islands. So they essentially form the eastern wall of Bass Strait. And they're made of silver granite domes. They're very, very beautiful. And there was a short period between 1797 and 1847 when they were absolutely at the centre of Australian history and all sorts of things were going on that later affected the way that Tassie developed and the way Victoria and even South Australia developed. And then after 1847, the islands kind of went to sleep and have been this very, very quiet, remote place ever since. But when you go there, not only are they remarkably beautiful in a physical sense, but there's this extraordinary feeling of 
history in the ground and, and around you. And, and there's many dozens of shipwrecks as well as ruined structures on land. And it really has echoes about it. And I've always, I've been going there since I, my early adulthood, I suppose. And I've always felt that and wondered how you would respond to it as a writer. And so I've started trying to explore the 50 years. 1797, the start of it, is the wreck of the Sydney Cove in those islands. And the story of how the survivors got to safety is what preservation, that first book, is about. I've then moved to 1830, which is kind of the middle of this 50-year period in the Burning Island. And the reason I've chosen 1830 is because that's when there were sealers living in the islands with their Aboriginal wives. And those women who are called the, the Tyree Law came from all over Tasmania and Victoria and even Kangaroo Island. And they were sometimes there by their own volition and they were sometimes there by outright abduction and, and were being held as slaves. There was this weird combination of both. And George Augustus Robinson was hunting in the islands for these women in order to take them into what he said was safety. He was going to make them into Christians and make them Europeanized, if you like. So there was this great tension going on in those islands in 1830 where all of these people with their different motives were moving about. And then eventually Robinson set up a settlement on Flinders Island called Waibalina, which is where the Tasmanian Aborigines were taken to escape the slaughter that was going on in Tassie. But that settlement was an abject disaster and, and a lot of people died there. It's a very, very sad place to visit. So the settlement closed in 1847, which to me is the end of, of the vital 50 years. So the third book looks at that settlement and how that came about. What I love about uh, this, this second book, uh, the Burning Island, Jock, is that you really do take us on a sea voyage. And I think uh, full credit to you in in the same way that Tim Winton can so brilliantly and beautifully write about the sea because he is also a surfer and a swimmer. You have captured it so well. And the premise is that um, we revisit a character from preservation, Joshua Grayling, who is now an ageing um, former uh, former army officer uh, who who is living in Sydney with his daughter Eliza, who is in her well, early thirties. Well, he's 30s. not exactly living with her. He's he's left Sydney and he's living out in the. Oh yes, yes, yes. So, and he's um, blind and he's a drunk. Yeah, well, I didn't want to give that away. <laughs> well, it's, um, you, you learn that pretty early. <laughs> but um, but they they for a whole uh, variety of reasons they take a sea voyage to these islands and part of the catalyst for this or the decision uh, is. Mr. Fig, who is the seriously evil character from the first book, Preservation, who disappears before our very eyes at the end of the novel. And the whole feeling through the Burning Island is, is he going to reappear? And the way that you've created that tension, um, because we have a love-hate relationship with Mr. Fig, Jock. We hate him because he's just so wicked and terrible and violent but we're enthralled because he's such a fascinating character. So we're kind of wanting to see him again. We won't give anything away, but um, I love the tension you create on that sea voyage. Thanks, Corey. I guess it's a strange advantage that didn't occur to me until I was well into writing the book, that if you're writing a sea voyage, you've got the boat. So you have a kind of theatre set. You have a little stage with characters on it, and they're in a very confined space and you can move them around and have little set pieces in there. But also you have this vast canvas of the ocean and the islands that you can evoke. 
So uh, it works nicely as drama. And I guess on one hand, I wanted to write about the islands and the sea creatures and the weather and all of those things that I kind of obsess about. And on the other hand, I wanted to keep this character drama of the Graylings versus Fig bouncing along in the background as well. And to move between the two things made the writing really interesting for me. I hope that works for a reader, but yeah, it's an interesting juxtaposition of the two things going on. Well, the boat, the Moonbird, is a stark character in itself, isn't it? And and the relationship between Eliza and the boat reveals itself pretty early. I've got a list of questions for you, though, that fascinate me about this story. Did Have you investigated the concept of cross-dressing? And did it, it clearly existed back in the early 1800s. <laughs> I tried to, um, and I couldn't find very much. Um, it, it was, I did find out that it was punishable by whipping. That part is true. Well, it obviously existed then. I mean, you didn't make yeah, it Yeah, exactly. There was something there they were addressing, I suppose. But um, on the other hand, I, I can't profess to know anything much about the psychology of how cross-dressing works. I just had this instinctive idea that all around us it seems to be fetishised, but that there must be other reasons why men would do that. And um, in this case, Captain Argyle has a particular reason why he is cross-dressing, which is very important to the story. And um, I was feeling my way into that as I went along. At first, I'd written a captain and he was too much of a cliche. He was too much of a, um, a craft beer label. You know, he was kind of a, a whiskery 19th century sea captain. And I thought, Old come on. sea dog. <laughs> yeah. So I put Well, he isn't that... He's not and that. Then I thought, okay, I'll work out why I did that. And it took a while. And and also, how difficult is it um, as a man to get inside the mind of a 32-year-old, in this case, I guess, un- unmarried woman? And back then, if you were 32 and not married and too tall and, you know, there wasn't On much... On the shelf. There really wasn't much hope for you. I mean, Eliza, who is the daughter of Joshua, her character is... I mean, I'm only 100 pages in, but she's just fascinating. Did you? What research did you do to look into her? Um, a couple of things. One was that I wanted to continue the thinking that I was doing in writing Charlotte in preservation. Yep. Um, Charlotte's not in this book, but um, in, a, in a sense, she's an extension of Charlotte. And I think I didn't really start with gender. I started with a person who is locked into a a kind of sad and repetitive life and is given the the opportunity to gamble everything on on something completely insane and frivolous, which is this voyage. And starting from that point, I think I had a sense of who Eliza was going to be long before I had a sense of her as a woman. And and then, of course, I had to think long and hard about um, how to express that. And, yeah, that's not easy. But it was the fish out of water kind of thing that I think was the starting point. And and the doctor on the voyage is fascinating too, because obviously he's investigating um, sea life and and diet and things that seem incredibly twenty first century to me, Jock. But if and, also if you think about the Joseph Banks I know, inquiry of yep. Australia, it, he's following on from that, collecting all of these little crustaceans and birds and and documenting them, and Eliza becomes increasingly intrigued by his work on the boat. Yeah, and the thing that was a surprise to me um, when I started to think about Dr Gideon was that these people, these naturalists, were not scientists in the way we think of scientists, in the sense that 
They weren't publicly funded. They weren't particularly objective. They weren't engaged in pressing matters of uh, health or ecology concern. They were adventurers, and they, a lot of them were seeking celebrity doing what they were doing. Mm. Um, what they wanted to bring back weird and wonderful creatures, um, samples of things, and um, publish volumes of their adventures and, and go on to lives of public speaking. A lot of it was really about celebrity culture and not about science. And I think Gideon gives away a little bit of that. He, he, he likes to tell grand tales and Eliza's smart enough to have half a sense that it's nonsense, but she's kind of impressed anyway. <laughs> Well, I mean, by the very nature of the time, I mean, they might have been all those things, but they were also intrepid explorers, weren't they? I mean, the yes. very practice of getting the things that he found, they have to go back, everything has to go back to England, you know, it's just, it's extraordinary. It makes me, and I, I said this to Corrie um, in an email the other day, it makes you rethink not your book, but so many things we know about Australian history now. What we learnt at school was, um, gee, it didn't <laughs> left out a few gaps, didn't it, Jock? Yeah, and I keep coming back to memories I have of um, when you got your books at the start of the year and you got um, a mathematical compass and you got a little plastic stencil of the Australian continent and you had to be able to trace around it and then do little lines where the explorers went. And they never had, and they never had Tasmania on their little. Stencil. They never had Tassie, yeah. And you had to be able to do Human Hovel yeah. and Burke and Wills That's and um, Stuart and Sturt and Forrest, and it was entirely rote learning and entirely uncritical. Some of these people were butchers, and some of them were pirates and drunks and all sorts of weird and wonderful mystics and visionaries. And, some of and them, Jock also invaders, dare I say? Absolutely, and. Um, we were uncritically told that these were the people who opened up the continent. And, of course, they were to our eyes, but they weren't in a real sense. That had been done 60,000 years before them. Well, I think, um, I think one of the great achievements of both preservation and the Burning Island, Jock, is the way you engage us with the Indigenous communities these uh, European settlers come across and you expose them uh, for all the graciousness of these communities and their good se good common sense and their sense of community, but you also really show us the terrible ways that white, the white fellas responded to these communities and slaughtered them. And it's important what you've documented. It's important history, even though it's fiction. I'm glad you say that because I think one of the things that really um, drew me in about these stories is that the Aboriginal people concerned here have been taken off their country. They've been taken away from their ceremonial life. They've lost a lot of their language and they have merged together in these islands alongside these sealers who are obviously European white people. And they've immediately started to build another independent culture all of its own, relying on each other. And, and what that tells you about is the extraordinary resilience of Aboriginal people that they could survive and adapt and continue to find new ways to get on. It, and in a really, really harsh environment. You know, the women who accompanied these sealers were doing all the physical work. They were manning the boats, they were swimming, they were flensing seals. Um, they were incredibly resourceful people. Out, out of interest um, in the Furneaux Islands, where, do you... Do you visit Cape Barren Island? Where have you been and travel? Do you camp there? Do you stay in a, 
Is there anywhere you can stay or where do you yeah. go? <laughs> yeah, so the main island, there's, there's somewhere between about 50 and 80 islands, depending how you count them, because some of them are just, you know, rocks with bird crap on them. But um, Flinders is the biggest one, and it's about 70 k's long, and yep. I think there's about 800 people living there. Um, so, you know, houses and towns. But um, I, I went to Cape Barron for the first time last summer, and that's Aboriginal land. And it's an Aboriginal community, um, which is entirely independent and, and starkly different in a social sense from Flinders. And then a handful of the other large ones have um, reserves or leases on them. Some of them are national parks um, and some of them are, are just entirely uninhabited, just wilderness. Can't wait for book three of this series. Can you give us a little hint about anything to do with it or not? <laughs> um, well, we know we, we know it's the end of that fifty-year period when the Fernal Yes, but Islands I'm thinking were... more of that particular character whose name yes. shall not be mentioned. <laughs> <laughs> I think we can safely say he's there. Um, oh, he's perhaps hiding in plain sight. <laughs> Have you been approached at all um, in terms of the small screen or the big screen with any of your um, novels? It's a weird business. There have been approaches and, and there are ongoing approaches. They light up and they fade away very quickly. Um, it seems that book people move in this slow, ponderous, traditional fashion. Screen people seem to move very fast and they make a lot of heat and light as they move. Um, and then they're gone and you think, what was all that about? God, I was listening um, to Tim Minchin talk about his, like four, Hollywood, yeah. his four years <laughs> episode with DreamWorks. Tim Minchin making a film for DreamWorks and how everything moved so quickly and then so ponderously slow over four years. And then overnight when DreamWorks was sold, they pulled the pin and the project was God. over. I tell you what, it takes no prisoners, movie world. Oh, oh. oh Absolutely. Well, I, I, on Java Ridge, surely has to be a movie oh, or a miniseries. I mean, ba- rules of backyard cricket. Yeah, well, all of, all of them really. Jock, all of your all of your over. Look, there is hope for you. Uh, the Jane Harper, the Dry, is about to be released. So, if Jane yes. can do it with the Dry, surely we can have on the Java Ridge. Surely somebody's throwing money at you, Jock. Hope so. Well, Java, <laughs> Java was the funny one because there was a phone call from LA, and I think by the end of the phone call, I'd pretty much sold the house and taking the kids out of school. <laughs> and again, it all just sort of evaporated at some points. What's the name? That great book title, Hello, He Lied. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Hey, Jock, um, just before we leave you, is there a book that you are wanting to read over this summer period, something maybe an old classic or even just something that's come onto the radar, a new one that you've been meaning to get to and you hope that the more leisurely hours of summer might afford you the time? Yeah, I, I think an old classic. I want to read the original novel version of Death in Brunswick. Oh, what a good idea. Great film. Yeah, yeah. Boyd Oxlade. Um, so I want to read that. And um, more recently, Martin Amos has done a book called Inside Story, which is announced as a novel, but I think it might be a memoir. Jock, I'm, uh, half, I'm halfway through it. I had to put it to one side uh, for a variety of reasons, but also I chose to because it's like having a big, fulsome roast dinner with the Yorkshire Hood. Uh, and I decided that I really have to wait till the summer holidays and the banana lounge for that one because life's a bit too uh, scatty at the moment. You were raving to me about this. It is this. fantastic. Yeah. And it, oh, good. you really look up, you approach it, approach it as an autobiography that's written in a novel style because he does talk about everyone, Elizabeth Jane Howard and 
obviously his close relationship with Christopher Hitch, Hitchin and oh, it's, it's just, pretty it's obsessed just by great, his father, isn't he? Yeah, and doesn't yeah Kingsley doesn't come off all that well in this, but it's it's a really um, wonderful wonderful book. So that's that is a very good choice. And, oh, and I'm la- glad that's as good as I hoped it was. That's good. And last of all, Jock, are you enjoying um, Freedom? Is it what's it like down there at the moment? I mean, it's yeah, one of the most beautiful freedom, places in Australia. It's always world. been reasonably relaxed, but freedom kind of came with guilt, I think, because a lot of my friends in Melbourne were having a terrible time of it. And, um, yeah, I, I have no dread at all about the Melbourne hordes coming over the hill again. I'm looking forward to it. I think it'll be really nice. Well, Jock, thanks for joining us. It won't be the last time we talk to you in the next few months. We love our occasional chats with you, as do the potties. And um, have a great summer. And thank you for joining us. And everybody, don't forget, The Burning Island, published by text, is available at a good bookshop near you. Thank Most you both. Lovely to chat to you. Buy it at my bookshop, though, like <laughs> I did. Thanks, Jock. That was thanks, great. Thanks, Jock. <laughs> no worries. Bye. Thanks for listening to this summer bonus episode of the Don't Shoot the Messenger podcast, proudly supported by Click for Vic. You can buy online now direct from chefs, artisans, makers and creators across Melbourne and Victoria. Click for Vic and get the best of Victoria delivered at visitvictoria.com forward slash click for Vic or just follow the links in our show notes. And let us know about your great Victorian recommendations and discoveries and Click for Vic suggestions. Email feedback at don't shoot pod.com.au